You're listening to the Recoveredish Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist, Amanda E. White. Hi, everyone. I am so excited because I have my friend, fellow therapist, Britt Frank is here. Hi, Britt. It's so good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I am so excited to talk to you. You are one of the only people that I feel can talk about this. We're going to talk about narcissism today. And I feel like you are one of the only people I trust to talk about this with. (laughs) It's gotten so weird out in the internet world. Like (laughs) what, what is going on? (laughs) It is, it is. And you used to talk about it a lot and you backed out of it for a while (laughs) or you have been. (laughs) Tell me about what, what you've been seeing and what kind of led to that decision. <laughs> I I started speaking and writing about narcissism. I think it wasn't really a thing and I know that yeah. because I I was looking for help. I was looking for resources and there was nothing. Yeah. And so I having gone through my own multi versions of that, I was like, okay, as a clinician, as a survivor, as a human, let's synthesize what this is and how to talk about it. And then as the internet world does, all of a sudden, <laughs> narcissism was the buzzy. Everyone's a narcissist. Everything is gaslighting. And people got really mean. And so I was like, all right, well, I've, I've written and spoken and shared and I'm kind of going to take a pause because I appreciate what you said about me speaking about it. You're one of the only people I trust to talk to me and ask about <laughs> yeah. it because it gets so weird so quickly. It Yikes. Really what? So yeah. So it's like, okay, I don't want to talk about narcissism anymore unless it's with someone I really, really trust. Yes. Well, the whole premise of this podcast is that we are very gray. We're very nuanced, um, which probably doesn't make the podcast as popular as it could be, but I don't care. <laughs> I think about this all the time. The opposite of all isn't nothing, right? The opposite of black isn't white. It is gray. (laughs) Gray on gray on gray. Yes. Yes. Would you, if you feel comfortable, share a little bit about your story with like narcissism and your experience? So, and we'll get into the weeds of what is it and how do you define it and what all that. (laughs) So just broadly speaking, I grew up in a family of origin system where there was a lot of covert narcissism, which is so, that that term did not exist. It didn't exist just a few years ago, let alone 25, 40 years ago when I was trying to like grow into a functional adult. Right. So having all of this weird energy and these weird behaviors and all this stuff that had no name, it must be me. I must be the problem. So of course I chose relationships that mirrored and amplified what I knew to be familiar. Yes. And I ended up in some really bad, and again, not everyone is a, not every asshole is a narcissist. I ended up with what would clinically be diagnosed as sociopathic, narcissistic abuse mm. that almost killed me. I almost mm. died in these relationships. And so I have a very uh, empathic, but responsible to the term for what it, and I don't gatekeep terms. Like if you want to call every asshole a narcissist, you do you have at it. But for people, and I know plenty, it's not a small problem and it's not an outlier problem. It's just narcissism is like a word that's both underused and overused at the same time. Yeah. But I've lived it and I have seen the absolute edges of what humans 
are capable of doing to each other. And I I don't feel a responsibility to share it. It's just, yeah. oh my gosh, I learned so much from that horrible experience that when I'm 20,000 feet above my story, it's actually kind of fascinating if you look at the depravity of what can happen with trauma left unchecked. But I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. So yeah, narc family, narc relationships, clinically what we're talking about, like the extreme version of that. And it's it's awful. Like I've withdrawn off of hard drugs and I've withdrawn off of high level narcissistic relationships. The relationships is a harder detox than the drugs. Yeah. I mean, I can talk so much about this too, because obviously <laughs> we share this, you know, I'm in recovery as well. And it is such a interesting thing when you're talking about addictive relationships or something that isn't a substance that you're detoxing from. It isn't as clear because you can't, I mean, maybe with narcissism or with certain relationships, you can try not to see them anymore, but you can't just deprive yourself of all relationships forever. It's like an eating disorder, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. like it's easy to quit. It's not easy, but once you quit drugs, you don't need a real, I don't need a relationship with meth or opiates. Right. <laughs> I can live a life without them. Yes. But I, I also have eating disorders and I can't yeah. live without food. So right. I have to manage it. And relationships are the same way. Narcissistic breakups are not just breakups. Not that I'm minimizing the pain of a breakup, yeah. but it's a different species. It, it is a, a quote, regular breakup will cause pain and depression and devastation and anxiety. A narcissistic deconstruction mm -hmm. will really take you to the edge of, of sanity, which yeah. is Again, I'm not comparing, I'm not minimizing, but we're talking about, I can't talk in disclaimers this I know. whole podcast, so I trust <laughs> well, everyone yes. to know I'm nuancing here. Find the gray. <laughs> we will, I know, I sometimes have to do that too, is just like, disclaim yeah. this whole conversation, please. Yes. We can't say it every five seconds, but please know that that is in the background, that is the context of this conversation. <laughs> so many angry DMs are coming. Yes. <laughs> So let's back up for a second. And Britt, what is the actual clinical definition of a narcissist? So, and, and here's the thing most people don't know. There really isn't a clinical definition. And most clinicians are not trained to spot it. Yeah, we have our DSM diagnostic criteria. You know, they do X, Y, and Z if they meet eight out of 10. But most clinic, if you ask a hundred therapists what their experience with identifying, treating, knowing the dynamics and how to walk people through it, you're going to get crickets. Mm. So that's, I don't think people realize, because I've seen I would on not the internet. Be able to. I mean, I can like loosely say I think this may be going on, but exactly. Dr. Romani is wonderful and her work I wish was around 20 years ago, yeah. but the definition, the clinical definition that I use yeah. is, and again, narcissism the, with an M, that's the characteristic, which we all have. Everyone acts like an asshole periodically. Everyone's self-focused. Everyone has less than ideal moments. Narcissism is the quality. Mm. Narcissistic with a C is the expression. So like when I was in my addiction, I was very narcissistic. Yeah. Anyone in active addiction is narcissistic with a C, meaning you're exhibiting the qualities. Narcissist with a T is what we're talking about. And that is a person who is so dominated by protective parts of their personality that there is no sense of self, there is no seeing the other, there is no relational fields. And the behaviors range from low-level lying and manipulation to high-level abuse to sadistic 
absolutely twisted types of manipulation and torture. But there's a spectrum on which all narcissism, narcissistic and narcissist stuff falls. So it's a range. Yes. Yes. I think that that is really important. Just like most clinical issues are a range. Depression has a wide range. And I, when you had said that you think that narcissism is overused and underused at the same time, I think of that with trauma as well. Oh my God, don't get me started on the trauma. The, the trauma conversation is just as like, uh, as the narcissist conversation, but they're both really, really common and need to be spoken about because people are suffering and they're looking and going, well, I guess everyone has trauma or I guess everyone's a narcissist. So, but like, I'm not going to say real trauma on the range of the things we talk way too much and also not enough about both trauma and narcissism. Yes. Yes. So with the lens being on narcissism, what do you see as we talk too much about narcissism and where is it that we don't talk enough about it? Oh, I love that. See, this is why I love you. Like, <laughs> That's the question I want to get asked. Like, yay. So where do we talk too much about narcissism is in this very, and I, I get it, I've done it, this hyper fixation on our partners. Mm. Are they a narcissist? What are they, why are they doing that? And what are the factors? And is it clinical? Is it pathological? Are they associated? Rather than talking about diagnosing other people, a better question is what is the impact of that person's behavior on me, regardless mm. of what you call it? What am I tolerating in this relationship? And yeah. shifting the lens from are they to what's going on for me? because that does solve the problem. Right. Are they a high level narcissist, a sociopath, or just a run of the mill asshole? Does it matter? If you're not being treated well, let's shift the focus to us. And then we can get, and again, as an, a clinician, I love diving into the what is narcissism and what's the origin and how does it happen? But that's not relevant when you're in these relationships. What's relevant is what are you tolerating? Let's figure out how to get you back in your choice power so that you can make a decision. Because I was not making conscious decisions. I was just reacting. I was constantly reacting and being overly addicted to this dynamic. Like, what is narcissism? When you're in it, that's not the right question. For us, it's the right question because that's what we're here to talk about. But yeah. we don't talk enough about the impact on us. We talk way too much about how do we catalog and like diagnose them. Yes. Yes. I think that makes so much sense. I think it also makes sense when people get very fixated on, am I an alcoholic? Am I an addict? That is an interesting question and we can think about it conceptually. But in the moment, if you are super fixated on that question, it doesn't matter. What matters is how are the drugs or the drinking negatively impacting your life? That, ugh, like, preach because <laughs> narcissism and being in a narcissistic relationship mimics a dick. I don't like that it's considered a personality disorder. I don't subscribe to the idea that your personality can behavior can be disordered, but narcissism from the, the lens of the person who's exhibiting it, that's mm -hmm. an addiction. That's a process addiction. They're addicted to a way of being and doing and thinking that's often enabled by their partners and family. The, being the partner of a narcissist mimics Al-Anon much yes. more than anything else. Yes. Yeah. So you can you talk a little bit more about that for people who aren't familiar with what that looks like? 
Yeah. And I love Al-Anon. And that is my, for all partners of suboptimal, less than healthy people, whatever they are, like go to Al-Anon, go to adult children of alcoholics. Yeah. So for partners of addicts, and I, I say this as one multi-times <laughs> over, yes. look how bad they are. Like I'm, I'm helping, I'm caring, I want to fix them. I'm good, they're bad, I'm healthy, they're sick. I was horrified to learn that, oh, I'm participating in a system of dysfunction. This yes. is not a I'm good, they're bad. This is a we thing, not a me thing or a they thing. Yeah. And Al-Anon is I, – I used to go to Al-Anon, which is a 12-step based group for partners of people who identify as having addictive behaviors. I'm like, I'm going to go to Al-Anon and figure out how to fix this person. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, wait. No, Al-Anon is about me examining my relationship with me, not about yeah. fixing my relationship with them. And I was so pissed off. I'm like, I've been duped. I'm <laughs> here to make them better. I don't yeah. have a problem. Thank you. I'm fine. It's like – yeah. If I'm choosing this type of a person, I'm not fine. Yes. 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 That makes so much sense. So if we broaden this to, let's say someone's listening to this and they feel like I am continuously dating narcissists, I feel really connected to this conversation, would it be appropriate that we could say to them, let's back up and focus a little less on whether they're a narcissist or not? Maybe they are. We're not saying they're not. We don't know them. We can't diagnose them. You probably can't diagnose them either. But let's talk about how this relationship is impacting you and potentially how do you get out of it? Yes, exactly. With starting with the caveat, because I got on the, wait, I remember a therapist being like, well, you're choosing this. I'm like, are you victim blaming? I am being assaulted on the regular. I am it, like, I, I'm choosing this. Like, excuse me while I punch you in the freaking face. And it's not victim blaming. And that like, not to disclaim every part of this conversation, but saying that I am choosing these types of people doesn't mean I deserve the abuse that I'm getting. It does mean that there is something in me that is resonating with this type of a person. There's a familiarity here. Otherwise, once I started working my stuff out, I stopped finding myself repetitively in the same relationship over and over. So it's not about blaming the victim. It's about recognizing that if you're in one of these relationships, we have to start the conversation with, with you, not yes. with them. And I didn't want to do that because I'm like, no, no, no. As a partner of an addict, my focus is on them. I don't want to look at me. Take that mirror and shove it. But we need the mirror first and foremost if we're going to heal. Yes. Yes. And I think that's like such a good way of saying what we're talking about is we're not saying it's your fault. We're not saying we don't care that this person is a narcissist. We're not saying, you know, any of those things. What we're saying is we're talking to you, right? Whether it's in therapy or whether it's you, the listener who's listening right now, we aren't talking to the person who is a narcissist. And most, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say most narcissists aren't going to actively seek out a narcissist um, podcast or, a, right? Like they're not actively going to be trying to educate them about it themselves unless there's more sinister things going on there um, to try to trick someone, which could be a whole different thing. But in general, I would say that you are the person we're talking to. So we want to give you tools to be able to help you. And the most important thing that you can take away from this conversation is putting some of the focus back on yourself because that is where we and you have some level of control. Exactly. And if you think of being a partner of a narcissist like an addiction, which it is, right? So 
this idea of I have to go, I, like I had pan- the the thought of losing my partners wasn't just a regular level of anxiety. It was like you're taking my stash away. I will I will destroy anyone who stands in the way of taking yeah. my thing away from me. Like you will not get your hands on my my stuff, my stash. Yeah. So if the do I stay or do I go question is too big, which it's going to be. We got to dial it all the way down with, don't worry, if you don't want to leave, don't leave today. Today's not the day to do that, but today might be the day to start to look in the mirror and say, not to blame yourself, but to go, clearly I have some wounds because Mm. if I did, maybe you don't think you should, maybe you don't identify as a trauma survivor. It doesn't matter if you're in this relationship, there is a wound in your heart and soul and psyche that needs to be tended to. So maybe we start there. Yes. Yes. What are some, I don't know if you have these ideas off the top of your head, but what are some smaller things that someone can start doing if they are resonating with this? It's so hard. I just want to normalize too. This is so hard on the individual level. This is a really, really hard thing to try to reckon with. And so I don't know what your choices are for if you're listening to this. Do you have access to therapy? Do you have the privilege of having extra money where you can take trips away with your friends? I don't know what, maybe you're broke and you're living with six people and they're all narcissists and you have nowhere you can go. But what we want to do is start by making a menu of three or four options. Mm. You don't have to do them, but let's start to identify what they are. Is there an Al-Anon group that you can go to? Is there a way that you can start to make make a a reading list? You're probably too overwhelmed to read books right now. So, okay, but can you make a list? Because if we can start with a menu of options, then we can make those choice points smaller and smaller and smaller until we can get you to a yes. That's what we're looking for. How do we get you to being able to say yes to something, no matter how small? I love that. I think that that makes so much sense because it's very overwhelming, especially, right, this is messier because you may live with the person, like you were saying. I think a lot of times parents, if you are a child and your family has, you know, a narcissist in it, that has a lot of impacts. Huge impacts. And so I I can tell you a story. This is when yeah. I was in a narcissist relationship and still addicted to drugs at the same time. And I had been on a multi-day meth bender. I was just a hot mess. I had walked out. You, I had a fight with my partner at the time. And I remember calling my sponsor and I'm like, I think I am in a relationship with the narcissist. And what do I do about my trauma? And she listens to these like, and she's like, okay, Brett, um, when was the last time you ate food? Oh yeah, I need to eat food. Okay, so if we're talking about small yeses, I call them micro yeses. I wasn't going to figure out the status of my relationship or how to set boundaries or what or how to practice self-love. That woman sat with me on the phone for an effing hour eating a yogurt spoonful by spoonful because that was the only thing I could say. I'm like, I haven't eaten in days. She's like, go to your fridge. And I'm like, there's a Mountain Dew, some moldy bread and a yogurt. And she's yeah. like, take the yogurt, get a spoon, spoon by spoon. Sometimes it has to be that small or you're not going to be able to keep going. Yes. Yes. I just wanted to pop in really quick. If everything that we are talking about is making you interested in therapy or feeling like I could really use some extra support, I would love for you to check out my practice, therapyforwomencenter.com. We are a practice based in Philadelphia, but we have providers located across the country in over 20 states. So we may be in your state and we can see you virtually. To learn more, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. 
Is there anything specific or anything you want to talk about with the difference between being in a narcissistic relationship that's a partner versus a family? When you're with a partner, the sex piece complicates things Mm. because narcissistic people or narcissists, whatever you want to say, generally fall into two camps. Mm -hmm. If a narcissist is in a relationship with someone who likes sex, then they'll deprive them Mm. and they'll make them beg and they'll withhold. If a narcissist is in a relationship with someone that's not really comfortable with themselves, they'll demand it and they'll create really, really toxic, abusive sex games where they force them to do things that are degrading that they don't want to do. And those are two very distinct camps, but that's generally where it falls. You don't get that particular dynamic with family. You get other problems, but you don't have the sex problem and the cascade of sex hormones and all of the stress that comes with being deprived or being forced. Um, so that's a factor. But when yeah. they're your family, there's this cultural idea of, but they're your family. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what does that even mean? Just because we share DNA does not mean I have to tolerate abuse. But that's a long journey to come to, you know, to cut people off in your family is a very painful, long, hard road. And sometimes you have to do that. Yeah. Well, I could go on. I mean, I will die on the hill of as someone who just had a child. My child doesn't owe me anything. <laughs> oh. You give me hope for humanity. Like I chose to have her and she doesn't owe me anything. And I'm lucky to have a relationship with her. And I will, it will be a privilege for me to have a relationship with her, like through her whole life. We could do a whole podcast episode on just like 20. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The toxic narratives of family and all of that stuff. One question I had for you, Britt, as you were saying this is, is there a difference between just an abusive person, like or being in an abusive relationship or being with someone who abuses you compared to a narcissist? I'll answer it because it's you asking. Because yes. I, I, I look at the people fighting on all the narcissist posts yes. about it. Like abuse is abuse and who cares what you call it? Well, you're right. While you're in it, and we've just said it, we've unpacked that entire thing. What we call it is less important than what it is and what we're tolerating. So yeah. But is there a difference? Yes. Abuse is not all the same. Like someone who's, and I'm not justifying, uh, <laughs> I am not justifying abuse. But right. narcissistic abuse is insidious. It's intentional. It is done mm. with, and I've, tr- keep in mind too, not only have I been in partnership with narcissists, I've sat in therapy across the couch from self-identified narcissists. People think narcissists don't go to therapy. They don't go to therapy to get better, but narcissistic mm. people love therapy. Oh my God, it's mm. a one-on-one where I all the attention's on you and this entire exercise is just to focus on you. Like they love it. It's just not yeah. intended to heal or change or grow or get better. But right. I've examined this from both sides of the couch. Mm-hmm. They know what they're doing. And that is – now, I'm not saying all abusers don't know what they're doing, but narcissists aim to destroy at all costs. The the intention is to consciously destroy people, and it's knowing, and that's a hard pill to swallow. I fought that, and listen to the disclaimers at the beginning of this episode before you DM us, but (laughs) – it's yeah. really insidious. It, it, it's a it's a next level fuckery that does yeah. not exist in the regular fuckery of, quote, regular non-narcissistic abuse. Technically, all abuse is narcissistic when it's happening, but we're talking about intention. Yeah. Yeah. I think what also probably makes this even more confusing is if there is an element also of addiction going on. I mean, the amount of people that I've seen diagnosed with like 
borderline personality disorder, right? Or all of these big diagnoses, but it's it's like impossible to give an accurate diagnosis when someone is not sober. (laughs) Or with their trauma. I fit every criteria I identified Mm. as, I wore my borderline diagnosis like a badge of honor. Well, I'll have to have you come back and we can unpack borderline and that will be another hot topic that people... (laughs) Hot take. Well, because borderline and narcissism are like two magnets that generally click together. The physics of narcissism is interesting. Two narcissists together, one will generally flip and exhibit symptoms of what would be called board. I don't believe in personality disorders. I believe in trauma and pain and behaviors, but your personality is not disordered. It's you're in pain and this is what's happening. But yeah, I was like hardcore borderline for 20 years. So I have deep compassion for, and just as much to say about it as I do narcissism. Can you tell us a little bit more about the magnetism of why people with borderline or exhibit borderline characteristics are more attracted to people with narcissism? I'll speak for myself. So with what was manifesting as borderline type symptoms, I had no sense of self. I had absolutely no idea who I was, what I was about. I was a shapeshifter, like whatever you're into, I'm into, whatever food you eat, I eat. So narcissists love that type of person that they can morph. So when I would get into partnerships, I could very quickly take on their identity because people who exhibit narcissism are so over-identified with who they Mm. think they are. And people with borderline are so under-identified with who they think they are that that creates a magnetism that draws them together. And it's really interesting if two narcissists get together, one flips and becomes borderline. And if two borderline people get together, one flips and becomes a narcissist. It's this weird physics wow. of the thing. Yeah. That is so interesting. That does make not a lot of sense time. though. Not every time. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag not all people. Not every yeah. situation. Let's get into gaslighting for, mm-hmm. for a moment because this tends to be this tends to be the next thing that people say when we're talking about narcissism. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my interpretation is that people gaslight people and that does not make them a narcissist. True or false? True, capital T, true. There are people who gaslight every day who are Mm -hmm. wonderful, good-hearted, kind people. And I'll give you an example. I call it the difference between malicious, malignant gaslighting and non-malicious gaslighting. The impact is not different. But so let's say you have a little girl. Let's say you come home from work and you've had a horrible day and she goes, mommy, what's wrong? And you say, oh, nothing, sweetheart. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. Don't worry. Everything is fine. That's not mean or malicious or abusive, but it is gaslighting. Your kid is picking up on your distress cues. She's not wrong. You are not okay. You don't have to dump on her, but an appropriate response is, oh, sweetheart, you're seeing that mommy is sad. You're right. Mommy is sad, but it's not your fault. You don't have to worry. It's a grown-up feeling and I have grown-up help. But when you learn to doubt your own perceptions, even if the parent goal is to protect the kid, doesn't matter. The kid saw you were upset. You told her she's wrong. And now she learns over time with enough repetition to not trust her own behavior. And that happens in addicted families too. What's wrong with daddy? Nothing. He's fine. It's like, no, he's not. He's drunk and he's passed out and covered in vomit. He's not fine. Um, So that's Mm non-malicious gaslighting. So gaslighting is not just lying or being an asshole. Gaslighting is when someone sees something and you give them information that makes them doubt what they're seeing. I saw you fall over. No, you didn't. I didn't fall over. What are you talking about? You're crazy. That didn't happen. That's gaslighting. What is the difference between gaslighting and lying? Did you get drunk today? No. Okay, that's lying, If you did, assuming you did. 
I see you coming home smelling like booze, vomiting on yourself and passing out and saying, wow, I see that you're drunk. And you're saying, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? Like someone threw up on me at work. Oh, I was carrying the beer for a friend. What you're seeing is not what you're seeing. I'm going to magic what you're seeing away from you. Lying is just saying something that's not true. Gaslighting is that person sees or is picking up on a not truth and you are doing your like Wingardium Leviosa Harry Potter shit to make them doubt their perception. Mm. Lying is me telling you a story about me. Gaslighting is me telling you a story about you if you want to boil it all the way down. Like lying is I'm telling you a thing about myself. Gaslighting is I'm telling you a thing about yourself. That makes a lot of sense. Do you believe that there is such a thing as self-gaslighting? Because that's something that I see so much and I get like confused with that because a lot of times gaslighting involves a power dynamic, right? And it's complicated. What do you think? (laughs) I'm going into therapist in here. What do you think? Well, I have been on the record on another podcast and said that I don't feel like self-gaslighting is a thing because it's really hard to, I mean, like I get the concept of it like broadly of you can try to convince yourself you're not seeing what's happening, right? Or you can try to convince yourself this isn't your intuition. So I get that definition, but sometimes I get frustrated with the purposeful manipulation. It involves power. And I'm just like, I think that's too complicated for you to be able to do to yourself. I agree with you. I'm okay. guilty. I've, I I teed that up because I, I knew what you were going to say. And okay. like, yes. And I knew you would say it beautifully. Uh, sorry. I totally put you on the spot. No, there. I don't care. Um, so I've been guilty of saying, you know, stop gaslighting yourself. I've done it. And then I got into kind of a really interesting debate with some colleagues about, you know, because Yes, like you said, we all have parts of us that try to talk us out of what we know, and we have parts of us that deny and self-deceit and all that. But you can't self-gaslight because the intention of gaslighting is to manipulate and destroy your sense Mm. of self. When we lie to ourselves or deny or whatever, the intention isn't to destroy ourselves. It's to protect ourselves from a painful truth. And so Mm. if you're using that definition that gaslighting is designed to cause harm, the self-denial is designed to protect. So no, you can't You can lie to yourself and deny and abandon and do all kinds of nonsense in your own head, but you do not gaslight. We don't gaslight ourselves. I agree with you. Okay, cool. Well, that was a really eloquent way of explaining that. So I really appreciate that. Okay. I think this is actually a really interesting question. Someone asked me, is there a good version of narcissism? Ooh, that's – oh, I love that question. That's like asking, is there a good version of shame? You know, the the purists will say, no, all shame is bad. All narcissism is bad. But if you're looking at your mind or your personality from the parts perspective, the idea that you're not just one thing, that you have good parts and bad parts and happy parts and sad parts, if you can look at your narcissistic parts, not as the, the sum total of you, but as parts of you, then they can become really valuable consultants. Like I think of my narcissistic parts when they're in charge, that's when I act out in addiction and it's not good. But narcissism as a quality is not bad unless it's exhibited in a choice. So good narcissism would be if you have one or two parts of yourself that are like, well, yeah, like this delusional sense of I can do hard things sometimes requires a little dose of narcissism, but it's, it's good when it's 
a consulting voice inside your inner company boardroom, it's not good if it's the chairman of the board or the main head coach or like the thing driving the decisions. But yeah, narcissism as a quality is useful. I love that. And I think that's where it's different between when we were talking about early in the episode, narcissism, a narcissist, narcissistic. There are, there's difference with that. And we all have narcissism in us, right? Yeah. It's, it's not bad. Like the voice of the inner narcissist would say, get on stage and sing that song that you wrote. You're the best musician in the world. Now, like that's not helpful if that's the only voice. But if you have another voice that said, all right, hold on. Like we have a lot to learn. We're not the best musician in the world. But like, you know, maybe it would be okay. And the narcissist is more of the cheerleader. And, you know, it's like clearly you don't want to be driven by that voice. But a little bit of it, like a sprinkle of salts, can be useful, especially if you're trying to cope with imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Your inner narcissist is a great advocate in that particular quest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Someone said, the term gets thrown around a lot, but what are some red flags that someone is a narcissist? Well... What's the impact of the relationship on you? Yeah. Like red flag, and I'll answer the question. I'm not going to be an obnoxious therapist. But like (laughs) more important than what are the red flags about them are, because someone could exhibit a behavior that's a red flag for you. That's not a red flag for me. Mm. Like I'm not a texter. I don't care if my husband goes on a business trip and doesn't text me all day because I don't like being texted. But that would be a red flag for someone who needs constant contact. Neither is wrong. It's more like, what's the impact of their choices on you? Does it is it working for you? How is it working for you? Right. So that's that's my obnoxious therapist answer. Um, the number one red flag that a person is a narcissist is lack of consistency. Like you need to see someone across a variety of contexts. In at work, at home, with friends, with family, after they've been drinking, if they're a drinker, after they've been around alcohol, if they're a non-drinker, when they're angry uh, throughout the holidays, when it's too hot out, when it's too cold out, you're looking to get a lot of data points that paint a picture. Um, another red flag is too much, too fast, too soon. Mm-hmm. If you've met your twin flame soulmate and now you're moving in together, and again, that's not every person, they're, they're outlier people who yeah. that's their story and like do your thing and have at it. Generally speaking, anything that's too much, too fast, too soon is probably not going to have an awesome impact on you. Yes. And I think a good way to also say that is because I think people can, like you said, get into fast relationships and it does work. But I think the key there also is if one person wanted to slow down, it would be okay and the relationship would still progress compared to if it's an unhealthy relationship, that is where it's like, you know, there is a purposeful, we need to do this really fast and someone doesn't have choice in that matter. Exactly. Lack of choice, high level control. Really the number one red flag, if we're going to sum this all up, the number one sign of gaslighting is confusion. Mm. Because when people do things that are like stupid, like you can be frustrated and angry, but two adults who are not narcissists in a relationship shouldn't be confused. I shouldn't be constantly going, wait, was did I say something? Did they say, was that a thing? Like, did I say something wrong? Did I wear something? Or did I, like, like confusion is always the ding, 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 ding. Something is very, very wrong here. Yeah. Um, so that is a very useful tell for me because if I'm confused, yeah, it's like, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Confusion shouldn't be a thing. Things don't always have to be happy or good, but they shouldn't be 
filled with chaos and confusion. Like, yes, we need to clarify and communicate, but the type of confusion I'm talking about has a particular flavor that people in these relationships are going to recognize. Like, oh yeah, I know what that feels like. Like they texted me every morning and suddenly they're not. Like, am I being too sensitive? Or, you know, they said something nice to me, but then, you know, now they're saying the opposite. Like, that's confused, things like that. Well, I think it goes right up into what we were saying with gaslighting, right? Because mm-hmm. if someone's continuously gaslighting you, you are going to be in this constant state of confusion over what did I say? Did I, you know, how did I impact this person? What am I doing wrong? And we're, like you said, we're not talking about confusion as in you don't understand what the person is saying. Right, right. <laughs> we're talking like- about confusion over whether they want to be with you whether what you're saying is making sense, whether, you know, these bigger concept sort of things. And the phrase you made me, Mm. like whether or not a person's a narcissist or just unskilled, you made me angry and that's why I did X. You made me so sad. Now I'm in a bad mood and it's your fault. Like adults can influence other adults' moods, but Mm -hmm. assuming you're not being a – like, yes, if you punch me, I'm going to bleed. You didn't make me feel sad. That's like you actually harmed me. Right. Generally speaking – you're responsible for your moods and your partner, if they are an adult, can manage their moods with choices and boundaries and whatnot. So if you if you hear a partner say you made me X, Y, Z, that's that's not good. Whether yeah. or not they're a narcissist, that's just not good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially I think people can sometimes be in the habit of saying that. And there's a difference between just saying it out of habit and purposely trying to create a situation where someone feels guilty or shame or is controlling someone through using the words, you made me feel sad, for example. And now it's your responsibility to make me feel better. It's like, it's not my response. Again, two adults in a healthy relationship are going to want to support, but it's never my job as your partner to make you happy, to make you feel anything. Like that's your job. My job is to not be a dick in the relationship and be supportive. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love that. Someone said, in my experience, narcissists call everyone narcissists. Is this common? Yeah, that's so f- they're, they're, I don't know who said this. These are this. really great questions. Yeah. Good job. I love your people. So good. There's a, I don't know who said, if, if anyone knows who said this, please let me know because I like to attribute credit. But a narcissist accusation is their confession. So I'm going to say that again. A narcissist accusation is their confession. So they're going to call everybody narcissists. They are going to accuse everyone of gaslighting. They are going to say, you don't love me. And how could you do this? And a narcissist accusation is their unintended confession. And I was in a relationship with one who, when he would get just like annihilated on drugs, would actually give me the playbook. And he would say, yeah, I always say the things that I know are true about me because I don't like them. It's Hmm. like, well, when you're high on heroin, how honest are you about this the game? And then he'd sober up and then we'd be off to the races again. But the accusation is the confession. And that is very common. Why do you think that is? So narcissists, even though they seem like they're super into themselves and all about themselves, is that's all a lie and smoke and mirrors. People who are full of themselves don't act like assholes. People who have a deep knowing of who they are and what they're about don't harm other people. Narcissists have no sense of self. Like there is nothing they look. It's like vampires. They look in the mirror and there's nothing in the reflection. And so they have to grasp and accuse because they're trying to identify, well, 
who, who, I don't know who I am. I don't even recognize you as a separate person. So if I accuse you of something, it's sort of like I'm grabbing onto my own sense of self. It's really twisted and distorted and confusing to be in as a partner, but Mm -hmm. it's, they have no sense of who they are. That makes sense. That makes sense. Someone said, why is everyone a toxic narcissist these days? And how can we bring back nuance to the label? Oh, thank you. (laughs) Just thank you for that question. Um, People, I think, myself included, are quick to label and categorize. First, I'll be nice. First, out of our own pain, we're trying to make sense of our experience. We want to understand it. It's really hard to let people go because you can't date potential. You can only date a person. You can't be in a relationship with who someone might be. You can only be in a relationship with who they are right now. And this idea of, but if they just did X, they would be so great, keeps a lot of us stuck in these relationships. And that's what I think drives the impulse to label. Um, It's also most of us, myself included, don't want to deal with our own shit because it's hard and it's gross and it's scary. So I'd rather label you a toxic narcissist than go, wow, I must be like, clearly I'm exhibiting some codependent tendencies Mm. and some love addicted tendencies and full flight for my own shit by focusing on you. But I don't want to do that. That's gross. Don't, don't tell me to look in the mirror myself. (laughs) Boo. Yes, absolutely. No. Well, I think it's so hard on social media because I go back and forth too of, I try to be so careful about not just blanket labeling things or providing lists that are too simplistic or things like that. But it's also really challenging when you're trying to answer questions and you're trying to educate on someone and there is a small set of texts that you get to try to distill a complicated topic, it is very easy to pull out sound bites essentially that don't capture the whole nuance of something. And that I think is what's so challenging about social media and why this overly simplistic diagnosing someone else stuff tends to thrive on social media. It does offer an easy, like, um, it pushes on this myth that if I can control you, then I will be okay. If I can have my seven signs, they're a narcissist, then I'm safe. And it's like, great. Even if that were true, even if it was as black and white as if they meet five out of seven, they're a narcissist. Great. You're still in the relationship. Now what? So Rather that if we've got to go reductive and simplistic on social media, I'd rather see seven things you can do to help yourself if your relationship is painful Mm. versus are they a narcissist? Yes. That's such a good point. This has been such a great conversation. Britt, is there anything I didn't touch on in this conversation that you wanted to share or leave people with? Oh gosh, so many. I mean, we need like seven more hours just on this. So I will say this just because I know we we really hammered the look at yourself, deal with yourself. So I think at like of like 95% of that, I want to sp- sprinkle a little bit of the last sugar. Narcissism is very real. Yeah. It is not something that people make up. It is absolutely one of the more horrific ways that people people with each other. Mm. If you are in a relationship where you are questioning the fabric of reality and you're doing things you don't want to be doing and you feel like you're in a fog, you're not crazy. There is no such, and I say this as a clinician and someone who takes psych meds and has been in therapy and had borderline, all the things, there's no such thing as a crazy person. I was convinced by my family of origin and these relationships that I was crazy. You are not crazy. That is not a biological reality. It's not a thing. So wherever you are, I don't know what your thing is, but I know you are not crazy. 
I love that. And I think the beautiful thing about that is I just feel like you can tell where someone is if they react to that by feeling better, by also being like, I'm going to take this on and I'm going to, you know, lean into your micro yes or some of the suggestions that you gave us, Britt, compared to taking that on and using this to blame more or something like that. But this was so wonderful. I think this was so helpful, Britt. And I wish more people talked the way that we do about nuance. Where can people find you? Your book is also incredible and talks about these micro yeses. So I think your book is also an incredible resource for anyone who is feeling stuck in a narcissistic relationship. Thank you for that. Yeah, find me on Instagram where it's just me and I, you know, don't send me angry DMs if you haven't listened to this whole conversation. <laughs> I mean, you do, you you are sovereign over your choices. Uh, find me on Instagram, buy the book wherever you buy books and my website is scienceofstuck.com. Great. And we will have all of that linked in the show notes. Thank you so much, Britt, for your time. And we'll have to have you back to talk about other sticky, interesting conversations. Yay, borderline. (laughs) Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy from my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country. 